Have you been wondering about whatever became of that consecration of Russia that Pope Francis did? Why is it that Russia is not yet converted? What about Russia? Are we going to see a nuclear war? Who knows? Because that's certainly what it seems like, even though we're not hearing much from the mainstream media. There is just as much fear right now over nuclear war than there was during the whole period of the Cold War. And yet, what is going on with Russia? We have a person who you might call a Russian expert. He is a former professor at the U U.S. Naval Academy. He's also lectured for years and is an author of several books. You're going to want to stay tuned for this interview with Dr. David Allen White. Dr. White, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So let's get right into the issue first, and then I'll back up a little bit. Tell us about Russia right now. A lot of people were very hopeful for this consecration of Russia that seemed to go according to the wishes of Our Lady of Fatima, in that the Pope did it, invited all the world's bishops to do it. Yet, people were wondering, so what's up with Russia? We haven't seen a massive conversion yet. We haven't seen a, you know, an end even to the hostilities in Ukraine. And this came about because the bishops of Ukraine first begged the Pope to do this consecration. So where are we with that? Well, let me, let me, one small correction. I'm, I'm a Russian expert insofar as um, I've had a deep love of Russian literature. I taught literature at the Naval Academy, but my real specialty is Shakespeare. So I taught Shakespeare for 40 years, um, but I've read intensively and taught especially Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn for many, many years. I'm a fan of Russian music. I've been lucky enough to visit Russia twice. So I, I'm not an expert, but then um, I am of the opinion that right now, as soon as you hear the word expert, turn and run the other way. <laughs> We're always hearing about the experts who are telling us things that turn out uh, to make, make their opinions questionable. So mine probably is too, but at least I'm not an expert. But um, to, to get to your question, um, yes, there was the consecration that, that was done, but there have been similar consecrations in the past, but not yet one that fully adheres to every element in the request um, that was sent by God through his blessed mother. And I, I find it astonishing that there could have been this parade of popes who cared enough to do something, but were all reluctant and hesitant to the point of leaving out something. Now, the thing I would say, and this is, this is um, the old poetry professor talking here now, every word matters. You know, um, it, it wouldn't be the same to say to be or possibly not to be. That would be an entirely different thing. Um, 
what the request said, God now asks the Pope to consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart in conjunction with all the bishops in the world. Now it is true, we, the invitation went out, you know, if you're not busy on this day, if you don't have a golf date, um, then, it, you know, please join me in the consecration. But that's not a command. It's not saying, look, at this day, at this time, we're all doing it. So that, and um, the Ukraine, the world, the people of the world were not mentioned. It was to be Russia. And in many of, in some of the other consecrations as well, we got a, a, a small list or other things added on. Uh, there isn't the purity of the exact words conveyed to us through our lady. So I think I would say, again, uh, nice, nice try, but no cigar. It just, it, it just didn't finally fulfill the request, the command. Yeah. Although God didn't command it. God, uh, the word is, God asks the Pope, okay? Which means there's still free will there. And um, it would take a real act of humility, I think, to submit um, to every single portion of what is asked. Because... Um, they always seem to know better or are hesitant about offending someone. Um, certainly, nobody seems terribly worried about offending God, but then that's the time we live in. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. If you, you can tell us a, a bit about what you make of prophecy generally. Um, it's a curious thing, and it's a fascinating thing, in that we, we have a collection of great and real prophets, and they're in the Old Testament. I, I would say that um, T.S. Eliot, in one of his last poems, The Four Quartets, goes at length about not mocking, but making fun of those who are going to fortune tellers or reading tea leaves or looking at, you know, what, whatever, to try to judge the future. We don't know. We don't know. But the Old Testament prophets did know they were they were prophesying directly from the supernatural. They were given what they were to say, and we have that. So, in that sense, um, I would call those the greatest and perhaps the only certain prophecies. Now, it is an impulse, though, that God put into every human being. So that you you can have, for example, uh, it can happen in history, but there are not that many cases. I'll tell you my favorite one: being a Shakespearean. Here's my favorite one: uh, Act One, Scene Two of Julius Caesar. The um, Caesar is is processing, and the soothsayer comes up to him and says, "Beware the Ides of March." Well, he just dismisses it. Then when he's on his way to the Capitol, Act 3, Scene 1, the soothsayer shows up again, and Caesar mockingly says, the Ides of March 
have come. And the soothsayer says, I Caesar, but not gone. And of course, uh, Caesar goes into the capital and we, want to, we know what happens there. Shakespeare uses his source, Plutarch. That is in the history of Julius Caesar. So that that is a part of actual history. And indeed it was, it was a prophecy. We know nothing about the soothsayer, although it's a great stage role. It's one of Shakespeare's shortest parts, but boy, you put an actor in it, it can be just spine chilling. Um, then there are, I, I would call them the myths, uh, particularly the Greeks who are among the more rational uh, of, of all societies. They, they had their dark side, their downside, but, but they were trying to figure out everything on their own. They didn't have that divine inspiration, but they knew very well there was a divinity there, there was the supernatural there. So in many of their myths, Cassandra, for example, brought back to Argos after the fall of Troy by Agamemnon, who carries the curse of being able to prophesy accurately, but nobody will ever believe her. Um, in Oedipus Rex, we have Tiresias, the old blind prophet, who um, tells Oedipus certain, makes certain predictions. In fact, Sophocles Oedipus Rex is in a curious way, a brilliant Greek mind wrestling with that mysterious division between free will and faith. Well, I'll just call it faith. Uh, we could call it divine providence. Um, Aquinas speaks about it in the Summa, a friend of mine, uh, a, a, a bishop said to me once when I said, well, I read it, I didn't quite understand it. He said, well, no one will fully understand it this side of the grave. Uh, it's, it is really one of God's great mysteries. We know they both exist. We know they both exist simultaneously. And uh, so there is that sense that um, to, to prophesy is an attempt to understand faith and for the Greeks, they presented mythically, which I think is is uh, is really really quite interesting. Occasionally, things will show up in literature. There will be a prophecy in literature. The most famous one ever is um, in Virgil's fourth Eclogue, where Virgil talks about, and this probably would have been written about. 30, 40 years before our Lord's birth. But Virgil in the fourth eclogue speaks of the coming birth of the boy child who will put an end to the age of iron and bring in an age of gold through his greatness. Now, uh, modern scholars poo-poo it and come up with all sorts of, of, of uh, explanations for it, but um, St. Augustine and Dante and some other figures such as that believe absolutely it was that Virgil was given a vision of what was coming and set it down. And that's a, that's a great prophecy. That's extraordinary. There's a, there, the couple from our own time, let me, this, this is the one that chills me to the bone. The greatest of all Swedish writers is named August Springberg. Nobody reads him. Occasionally, one of his plays gets done. He was he was really genuinely crazy. 
um, and, and brilliant and a great writer. He had a conversion experience of a, of a kind, um, went from being an atheist to believing in a God, but the God demanded suffering from those of us who are mortal. That was how we were to serve him. We were here to suffer and only through suffering could we attain wisdom. His last play is called The Great Highway. And it's a pilgrimage play. Principal character is called The Pilgrim. And it's a series of, series of scenes and he meets individual characters along the way, each one of whom tells him something that he learns from. Among the very last ones he meets is a little Japanese man. And what the lesson is, again, is you have suffered in your life. That is a great good. You must suffer more. And the pilgrim is taken and wants to talk to the Japanese man. And the little Japanese man says, no, I've said what I need to say. And now the time has come for me to end my life. And the pilgrim says, but I don't even know your name. And the little Japanese man says, I am known by the name of the town in which I was born. And he steps into a furnace and says, my name is Hiroshima. And wow, the flames hmm. explode. 1909. Wow. 1909. Um, when... Strindberg's body was found and he was dying of stomach cancer. He died in 1912. He had a crucifix on his chest hmm. and asked for a simple burial. And all he wanted over a wooden, written on a wooden cross was Ave Crooks Spes Unica. Hail, hail cross, our only hope. I actually wow. visited the cemetery in Stockholm and said a rosary there for him. Wow. <clears throat> um, but for, to my mind, that's that's one of the prophecies. How? I mean, what? I, it can't just be an accident. Mm -hmm. It can't just be. Um, Amazing. Well, the the prophecy of Our Lady of Fatima through the children, it, it very much speaks back to the type of Old Testament type of prophecy because they were given words that they didn't even themselves understand. Right. What what do you make of the of the children's prophecies of Fatima, and where are we in terms of the arc of their fulfillment? Well, it's it's fascinating that um, they conveyed it pretty well, but even they were taking some basic lessons. Um, they were they were instructed. Uh, Our Lady, being a good mother, and first of all, instructed the children. Um, the, and please notice the very first thing that she instructed them on, um, the first part of the three-part vision was the vision of hell. And we live in a time that dismisses hell, simply dismisses hell. Um, or we hear things such as, well, there may be a hell, but we can hope it is empty. Well, that's not what the children saw. I mean, the, the, the description that they give is uh, pretty chilling and uh, it would be nice to get back to that kind of and in fact they fall on their knees screaming 
So it's a momentary vision. She doesn't do much more than that. But then they learned that their suffering can save, it can help keep people out of hell, um, can help some who are in purgatory. Again, just very good lessons. The, what is fascinating is it's the third part of the secret that personal, my personal opinion, I think the vision was accurate, but we weren't given the commentary. The first two parts of the secret, it's very clear that the Blessed Mother made uh, an explanation that the children could understand. The, um, you know, um, Francisco and Jacinta did not live that long. Sister Lucy did and had a terrible time even writing down the third part of the secret. It was so, it was so upsetting. Um, one could do one's own interpretation of that vision of the supposed third part. We don't know if it's accurate. We don't know what the Blessed Mother said. So I, um, it's pretty clear from bits and pieces that we've seen that um, I, I knew Malachi Martin fairly well. And I remember him saying at one point that keep your eye on um, the Ukraine. Keep your eye on the Ukraine and um, Kiev. And what events begin to dis begin to um, become noteworthy there, know that certain things have been set in motion. Now he, he knew the secret, but he couldn't he couldn't give it out in full. But that was a kind of hint. So as soon as the Ukrainian kerfuffle started up, uh, I've been keeping a close eye on it. Yeah, I, I suspect there's something there. It's a totally fascinating time. I wanted to get your perspective on Russia specifically, because we're in a strange time. We've seen Russia go from outright communism, where they spread the errors of abortion. They spread, actually, homosexuality as well. We're talking back in the 20s, when it was first legalized in Russia. And it's obviously spread to the rest of the world. But in some ways, particularly over the last decade or so, they've had somewhat of a turnaround. But you go there and the Catholic Church is still very much restricted. Uh, you Basically, it's hard to find a Catholic Church at all. Um, and so there's a lot of confusion. It seems in some ways they're doing better, in some ways they're not. And there seems to be this threat now of, of nuclear war coming from Russia as well. What do you make of all that? Uh, the first thing I would say is if the consecration of Russia had been carried out at the time it was requested, um, in the second part of the secret given to the children in 1917, uh, the Blessed Mother says, I will come later uh, with, with the request. So they know, you know it was coming. It actually, occurred, the request itself occurred in Tweed, uh, T-U-Y, you you know, anybody who's interested can look it up. And it took place on June 13th in 1929. And it was then that um, 
part of it said, you know, if my requests are fulfilled, and this came from God through his mother, if my requests are fulfilled, um, the, the great war will end. No, if my, let me get this right. If my request is fulfilled, Russia will be converted. Your my Maktavar will triumph a period of peace. We grant into mankind. Well, Russia would be Catholic right now if the consecration had been done. World War II would have been avoided. The Vietnam War would have been avoided. I mean, you just look at the wars that have taken place since then. All of them avoidable, and the folks have not yet done fully, precisely what was requested. So that um, a lot of people hope so, and a lot of people take little pieces of it and say, see it happen, but sadly it hasn't. So that, number one, um, I'm not surprised it's not Catholic, the Russia's uh, not Catholic yet, but I also know that the Blessed Mother said, in the, in the end, the Pope will consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart, though it will be late. My Immaculate Heart will triumph and a period of peace will be given to mankind. But if a period of peace is given to mankind, that says to me, the world will be Catholic. And there are many who say it will be the greatest triumph of the church uh, in, in its entire history. So uh, we, we look forward to that. And I'll get into a specific uh, literary prophecy from, um, from Russia a, a little later, a little later. But what's happened is if, but she also said, you know, if, my, if this request is not fulfilled, uh, a second greater war will come and Russia will spread its errors throughout the world. I, there it is. And uh, it's certainly the, the, the primary error is atheistic materialism. And all you have to do is look around you now and realize that has spread everywhere. Um, it, it really is. But we can look at specific aspects of it. Um, for example, the, the abortion thing is, is horrifying, absolutely horrifying. Although Russia has cut back on it, and uh, President Putin has publicly honored large families and encouraged large families, something you're not seeing in Europe or, or here in, in our own country. But um, it's, it is so nightmarish. And again, we're on the brink of seeing an explosion of animosity between the, the pro-life and, uh, and, the, and the abortion factions. You, 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 you just, it started and you know it's going to get worse. Um, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go back to my, my primary and first love of Shakespeare. The terrible words spoken by that charming woman, Lady Macbeth, near the end of Act One of Macbeth, when she's trying to get her husband to go through with the murder of Duncan, King Duncan. Um, she says, I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would 
while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you have done for this. He should be the patroness of all, of all the abortions. And what it is, is a desire for power um, and an attempt to control the future. Uh, it's, Macbeth really is about, uh, hell, uh, the, the, it's one reason why we have all those witches, all the prophecies, Macbeth is filled with it. And there are aspects of the future that we're not to know. By the way, let me say one other thing. What is violated there, I mean, the murder is hideous, but he was a guest in their home. Anybody who hears this nonsense of, you know, it's my body and I can do what I want with it, simple response. Does it have the same blood type you have? Does it have the same DNA you have? Does it have the same fingerprints you have? Then it's a guest that you have allowed into your body. And if you kill it now, you will basically do what, what the Macbeths do to King Duncan, and you can plan on not getting much sleep and sleepwalking at night, at night, trying to rub the blood out of your hands. Out, out, damned spot, out, I say. I mean, Shakespeare knew it all. He really was pretty extraordinary. Um, so there's that. Divorce came from Russia. I mean, they were the ones who, who, who legalized divorce. They were the first to set up daycare centers. And I was just reading recently a comment by Lenin, who said, the family cannot be responsible for raising the children. It takes the entire society to raise the children. I didn't know maybe, apparently Hillary Clinton's been, been reading Lenin as well. Um, yeah, it's it's but there are two others I would say, and um, this takes us way back in history. In 1988, Russia celebrated the thousandth anniversary of its conversion to Christianity. It was Saint uh, Vladimir of Kiev, who was the Grand Prince of Kiev who converted and had his people convert. And then it, then it spread fairly quickly, although that was 988. In 1054, the great schism took place so that Russia was only officially and fully Catholic for about 40 years. Um, at the time of the great schism, they rejected, they rejected the papacy, okay? So it's been a long time that they they have they have been in schism. And I would say that's an error that is spread because look at all the sects that have broken away over the years, all of the, the ripping apart of the mystical body, which is a which is a horrible thing. And it's happening right now. The animosity among various Catholic groups is is extremely unsettling. And very sad, but it's growing. It's getting worse, so that that schism, that that ultimate um, error of Russia, has entered now. I think into Mother Church herself. It's very frightening. And one other one. I'll do this. I'll do this. Just one other one. 
the, there is a the greatest of all Russian operas is Boris Kutunov by Mussorgsky. Boris reigned. It's based on a play by Pushkin. Boris reigned right around 1600. He was not officially the czar. He had had the young czar Dmitri murdered. So he began his reign with blood on his hands, and he was in that sense a false czar. In the opera, a young go-getting man decides that he learns this story about the murder that's been, and it's been hidden and decides he will proclaim himself the real Dimitri and therefore he will get to be czar and he goes out and starts, starts getting an army to follow him. So we have the false czar, we have the false Dimitri, we have, I mean, it's just falsehood people who are not what they're pretending to be. Um, let's just say that era of Russia is everywhere now. I'll start with being rather more polite and say simply, we have economists who, are, who don't know the economy. We've got teachers who don't know what they're teaching or how to teach it. We've got music that is banished melody and is unlistenable. Um, we've got, you, you just run through it. We have questions about the highest offices in the church. We have questions about the highest rulers of our country, even to the point where, I don't know if you followed any of this, there are some questions about Sister Lucy. Um, and I won't get into that now, but I will just say this notion of, is anything real? Is anybody real? Who's false? Who's not? Who's true? How we can, how can we tell? And indeed, that's one of the errors of Russia, I think. So they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Yeah. So what, what do you see in terms of this fulfillment, this turnaround uh, that's prophesied to come from Russia? Um, how do you see that unfolding? When do you see that unfolding? Ooh, it's a very difficult thing to try to figure timelines. Um, I would just say everything's heating up very clearly and, and heating up rapidly. Um, simultaneously, nobody seems to remember Sodom. Um, we, we know that is a, a Abortion is a sin that cries heaven for vengeance. Sodomy is a sin that cries to heaven for vengeance. Not paying a living wage. And look what's being done to the currency. Look what's happening to decent, hardworking people trying to make ends meet. Not taking care of the, of the poorest and, uh, and, and most helpless in your society. Um, Canada has just, has just I don't think they passed it. They're dealing with the law to um, take care of the elderly who no longer are leading fulfilled lives. And our great writer Walker Percy predicted that uh, that it was simply it was once abortion was unleashed, at some point they'd go for the other end of life. So I'm I'm surprised I'm still here. I'm pretty useless now. I'm just a I'm a retired guy who reads books and listens to music. 
and occasionally chatters a bit. But, uh, so, but I do think pretty clearly um, the, the other great prophecy, I think, of, of the time is from Akita, Japan. Again, it's not surprising given what, what they've been through. Um, but the, the nun from Akita, one of the things she said that the Blessed Mother told her, fire will fall from the sky. Now, that may be nuclear weapons. It's entirely possible because um, that, that could do the job. Or it could be the kind of fire that destroyed Sodom. It's, it's God making very clear, um, okay, enough of this. I'm putting an end to it. And indeed, she, she goes so far as to say that the punishment will be so severe the, um, the living will envy the dead. Um, so, oof, we, we, it's the time, time we live in. It's the time we live in. It's hard. And it, but as, I, as I, I occasionally remind myself, these are the easy days, tough as they seem to be to those of us who are used to a cushy, comfortable life. Mm -hmm. I would, I would love to hear your take. Um, you mentioned about uh, Dostoevsky and uh, his sort of prophecies as well. Um, if you could tell us about that, how that might pertain to Russia. Yeah, well, uh, the book that most people know Crime and Punishment, which is a masterpiece. Um, other folks have read the, Karam the Brothers Karamazov, which is one of the great novels ever and is last. Um, the the novel I'm going to talk about is called Demons, and try to find the translate. If you if you choose to read it, it's a long book, a tough book. A first third of it is really tough reading, but then he grabs you and just pulls you through quickly to the end. Um, so it's a great, great masterpiece. Um, some call it greater than Karamazov. That's a toss up. Um, it in it. And it was, it was serialized in 1871-1872 in a Russian magazine. Well, during, at that time, Dostoevsky had already spent six years in prison for radical revolutionary, um, I, I could hardly call it work. He belonged to a revolutionary study group and were caught with banned books. And he, he then, he was sentenced to death. And indeed, the morning of his execution was hauled out with the others wearing hoods. The guns were cocked. And then they were told the czar had forgiven them that they were to spend six years in prison. Um, it's the great Dr. Samuel Johnson line. Nothing so concentrates a man's mind as the knowledge that he's going to die in the morning. I mean, it's, and it, it's like, it somehow cleared Dostoevsky's head. His mother had been very religious and read the gospels to him. When he went into prison, there were ladies outside handing out New Testaments to the prisoners. He absorbed it during his years. And he went from being a, revolu a, a, a Russian revolutionary 
to being um, a counter-revolutionary with a deep understanding of what would happen if, if socialism ever took hold in Mother Russia. There's an uproariously funny scene where all the radicals get together and they're all arguing about everything with, I mean, it's, a, it's, almost, it's almost like a modern committee meeting or something, but they're all crazy people. Um, well, I guess that is a <laughs> It's a modern committee meeting now. Sort, yes. So, so <clears throat> they're, they're arguing back and forth and um, there's a character named Shikolov and he's written this extended work about how to bring absolute freedom to the, to the society that they're living in and the glorious future that it will be. And he says, my only trouble is I get, I get all bollocks up because I start with total freedom, but I end up with total despotism. And that's exactly what happened. And then a man who's unidentified, simply, he's simply called the lame old man who's sitting in a corner says, oh, yeah, if, if, if this is gonna succeed, a hundred million heads will have to roll. Basically, we're put a hundred million of our own citizens to death. Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago says, and they laughed at Dostoevsky because it was a prediction he made that if socialism took place in, in Mother Russia in the next century, a hundred million heads would be destroyed, would, would roll. Um, so you said they laughed at Dostoevsky and they were right to laugh at it because he was wrong. It was 110 million. It's horrible. I mean, but again, in our own country, 62, abor 62 million abortions thus far. And I'm sure that number is, is rising all the time. There's another curious moment. Uh, the, the novel is set in a smaller town, so, but the mayor's wife is trying to keep up. Uh, she's one of those learned ladies. So she wants to keep up with the revolutionary thing. So she's holding this big fest, this, this festival. And all of these, uh, these great thinkers are coming and reading their works. And, well, of course, it ends in total chaos. But there's a little figure that appears out of nowhere. And Dostoevsky describes this little man as being bald in the front and the back and having a pointed beard and lifting his fist and shoving it down. It's Lenin. There's a portrait of Lenin. I mean, it's a, it's a portrait of Lenin. And then suddenly the whole town goes up in flames. And the poor fire chief is standing there watching the town burn down. And someone says, it's, it's, look at the fire. It's, it's on the roofs of the houses. And the, the man says, the fire is not in the roofs of the houses. It's in the minds of the people. And boy, that's, um, he, he was very wise. So he saw it coming. He knew how awful it would be. He knew how destructive, chaotic, and uh, deadly it would be. And that part of the, the the ones who are really to blame are parents who haven't paid attention to what's happening to their children, um, a, a mother who is overindulgent of, of, her, of her son, and lousy teachers who are filling the students' heads 
with this nonsense and turning them into revolutionaries. And in fact, the worst of the revolutionaries, his own father is a professor who wises up during the course of the novel and comes to a very different understanding. Um, I could actually do this now. Um, I need to read just a bit of this because it's the epigraph for the novel. Epigraph is a little quotation at the beginning that tells you really how to, uh, it's from the Gospel of Luke. Um, I'm sure you know it. I'll just give the beginning of it. A large herd of swine was feeding on the hillside. They begged him to let them enter these. It's our Lord. So he gave them leave. The demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Okay, that's the epigraph. Near the end of the novel, I hate to give away plot, but I I, I have to do it. The old rabbit, the liberal professor, has produced this group of crazed revolutionaries, and he's coming to realize it's been his fault. And he loses everything. And it's almost Lear-like. He walks out into a storm, just holding an umbrella, not knowing where he's going, what's going to happen. He becomes very ill and is taken into a, to a little, little inn along the way. But he meets up with a woman who's appeared a couple of times earlier in the book, who is called the Bible Lady. And she's, she's handing out New Testament. And she remembers him and goes and sits by him as he's dying. And these are his final words. He requests that that passage from the Gospel of Luke be read. These demons who come out of the sick men and enter into swine, it's all the sores, all the miasmas, all the uncleanness, all the big and little demons accumulated in our great and dear sick man in our Russia for centuries, for centuries, this Russia that I have always loved. But a great will and a great thought will descend to her from on high as upon that insane demoniac. And out will come all these demons, all the uncleanness, all the abomination that is festering on the surface and they will beg of themselves to enter into swine, and perhaps they already have. It is us, us, and all of them. And I perhaps first at the head, and we will rush insane and raging from the cliff down into the sea and all be drowned and good riddance to us because that's the most we're fit for. But the sick man will be healed and sit at the feet of Jesus, and everyone will look in amazement. Consecration, Russia will be converted, Russia will be Catholic, Our Lady's Immaculate Heart will triumph. There it is, 1872 it was written. I mean, it's just... Uh, Truly, truly astonishing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's quite it's quite quite remarkable. Um, 
let me let me uh, let me just add this. I don't want to go on too long. Um, what Russia has produced among its writers is extraordinary over the last couple of centuries. Um, Turgenev, good writer, not crazy about. Um, the great Nikolai Gogol, who wrote some of the funniest and most moving short stories ever written by anyone. If you don't know the nose, read the nose. Uh, 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 a nobleman wakes up one morning and his nose is missing. And a baker bites into his roll in the morning and there's a nose in it. And then the nose starts leading a life of its own. And it's going to parties and balls. I mean, it's just, it's so crazy. It's, yeah, but it's, it's, it's brilliant. A story called Diary of a Madman. And a wonderful story, heartbreaking, very funny, beautiful, called The Overcoat. That some will call, I, I've seen it called the greatest short story ever written. Um, and Tolstoy, a great writer, although a, a nutcase, in that um, he was touched by Christianity but didn't believe in an afterlife. So that his whole notion was peace and brotherhood and we can all love each other, which is a hideous temptation. It got echoed clearly. I mean, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. were all very much attracted to Tolstoy. But Tolstoy was a brilliant writer because his depiction of the world around him and what he lived in, his ability to write those battle scenes of war and peace, his ability to get inside the characters in Anna Karenina. I mean, just, he, he was a genius. He was a genius. Dostoevsky is just transcendent, just unbelievable. And then comes Solzhenitsyn, goes into the camps, an atheist, and in the slave labor camps, discovers the faith. And then, um, I don't know if you know the story, but, but he developed cancer. Was taken to the camp hospital, and they told him, you're going to die. Um, there's nothing we can do. He had a cancer tumor in his stomach that was huge. He went back, knelt down, and said to God, if you cure me, I will use every remaining day in my life to tell the truth about my country and what happened to it. The tumor shrank, went away, disappeared, never came back. He lived to be 89. And he kept his part of the bargain. The Gulag Archipelago is the great work of the age. Um, very few read it. It's long, it's tough reading, but I would say this. It's a book you can pick up it's a three-parter. Make sure you get all three parts. You can read a couple chapters, put it down. You'll probably have to put it down and take a breather and then go back to it you know, some sometime later and try again. But there's a beautiful moment. Um, the center of the book is called The Soul and Barbed Wire. And again, it's what we've already talked about, the absolute need for suffering. I go back to, to Aeschylus, you know, uh, where Cassandra appears. Orestes, near the end of the Aristia, says, 
I have suffered into wisdom. Um, the greatness of Dante's Purgatorio. Most people just read the Inferno, um, ignore the, the the Purgatorio, and very few make it to heaven. <laughs> very few ever read the Paradiso. But uh, the whole point of it, as as Dante sees it and understands it, is the need for that suffering, that purification. It's what King Lear is about. It's what Lear is about. The poor old man, you know, um, only comes to wisdom through suffering, and we get it again then from um, Solzhenitsyn, the writer of our age. The great Greek writer was Homer. The great Roman writer was Virgil. The great writer of the Middle Ages was Dante. The great writer of the, the Renaissance era, the shift from the medieval world into our modern world was Shakespeare. The writer for our age is a Russian named Alexander Solzhenitsyn because his topic is totalitarianism, the loss of freedom, the hatred of God, and the, the blood, on, blood on the hands of the mass murderers. Um, with with a full and deep and rich understanding that the only hope left for us, the only hope that remains is, um, I'll quote the end of his Harvard commencement address from 1978, mankind has no other way to go but upward. We have to, we have to be willing to recognize God, begin trying to raise ourselves up and do penance for what we've done. So, he's, he's uh, the great Malcolm Muggeridge said, um, the great Malcolm Muggeridge, the modern student could do no worse than to read the entire works of Solzhenitsyn. Now there's a contemporary, a modern writer worth reading. But of course they're dumping all the great writers of the past and reading these pipsqueaks that pretend to be writers in our own time. I just learned there's a there's some sort of uh, contest going on. I'm glad I retired in the English department at the Naval Academy. Dropping Shakespeare is a requirement for English majors. And one reason is in a survey of the 50 leading universities in America, only four require a Shakespeare course from their English majors. Wow. Wow. Dr. White, I want to thank you so much for sharing with us your love of literature, your love of the faith, your understanding of Russia, and amazingly, the evidence of prophecy, not only in spiritual works of the scriptures, but also in the works, great works of literature. And I'm sure you've whet the appetite uh, for many to get back to the great works. Thank you so My much pleasure. for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on The John Henry Weston Show.